This message is entitled, The Origin of Man. It is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Last session, I set far too big a goal for myself and didn't begin to get it accomplished. So this time, I'm not going to make any promises as to what we're going to cover. I know where we're going to start. We're going to start with the origin of man. And we'd like to get through the origin of man and the unity of the race and the original state of man and to talk about these things briefly. But uh, at times I really feel for you because I recognize that we're touching areas and some of the areas have no acquaintance to you. They're very vague. You take it down. You don't even really know what you're writing down sometimes. All I can hope is that you'll be able to use it for future study and reference and that some of it will relate to what you're already studying and be helpful. But I just want you to know that we understand that you couldn't possibly understand the whole area just by getting the snatches that we're trying to give. Therefore, I'd like to make a couple of recommendations of books, especially in the area that we're talking about today, in this matter of man and his creation, which is, of course, a very, very thorny issue, the whole subject of evolution versus creation. And some of the books that have been particularly helpful to me are these. John Klotz, K-L-O-T-Z, the book Genes, Genesis, and Evolution. That's G-E-N-E-S, not J-E-A-N-S. Genes, Genesis, and Evolution. John Klotz, I think, has a distinction of being the only minister who is also a Ph.D. in biology who was named to the who's who among biologists in America. Then there is Paul Zimmerman. Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N, who has written a number of books in the area of creation, science, and so forth, is a professor of biology, I believe, at Concordia College, and I've forgotten which one of the Concordias he's at, but it's in the Midwest. His name is quite common. You'll see it coming up again and again in articles and books on creation. Any one of them will be helpful. Paul Zimmerman. Another name that you need to perhaps watch for is the name Henry Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S. Now a professor at Creation Heritage College in San Diego and has come out with some very helpful material. And he, together with John Whitcomb, professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary, John Whitcomb, W-H-I-T-C-O-M-B, co-authored the book, The Genesis Flood, which is undoubtedly the most extensive work on that subject. The Genesis Flood does not confine merely to the flood, but gets into the theories of creation and the whole area of paleontology and so forth. John Whitcomb, a very lucid writer, good because he is so solid in the word. He really is inductive in getting his material out of the word. An organization that you might want to be familiar with is Creation Research Society. These men that I've mentioned, all of them would be members of Creation Research Society, together with other members such as Walter Lamertz and George Howe and a number of other people that have written in the area of special creation. They also are the ones who are responsible for putting out this new textbook on biology. Pretty solid book on that area. If you happen to be a teacher in biology, be great to use that as a corollary text if you're aware of it. 
don't take for granted that people have heard the creationist viewpoint. I remember Dr. George Howe, the one who co-authored the book with Maxwell Coder from Moody Press on practical issues of creation and Bible difficulties and so forth. He was taking some postdoctoral work at Cornell University, and in speaking with his major professor, he found the major professor had never heard of the option of special creation, never dealt with it. And he invited Dr. Howe to present it to his class. And after he got through presenting, he said, I think this is a rather unique presentation. And I think certainly this merits our attention, so on and so forth. Never heard of special creation before. So I think it would be good for you to get good pieces of literature that espouse it and then see to it that it gets into the right hands. So much for the books along that line. Now, Roman number one, The Origin of Man, and I'm going to do a lot of dictating here. Capital A under The Origin of Man, The Time of Origin, The Time of Origin. Now, we're not going to go into dealing with a lot of the individual theories. We're going to deal with them more generally and give you principles and ideas from them. Many fiat creationists, that is, special creationists, insists on a relatively recent origin for man. Most notable among those in a previous generation was perhaps Archbishop Usher. In the old King James marginal notes, you have his date for creation of 4004 B.C. He even had it down to the day, and I believe around noon or shortly thereafter. So he was rather exacting. Now, the dates of some of those who have taken a relatively recent creation have been formulated on inadequate bases. For example, they have used the genealogies to make chronologies. And this is unwarranted. The genealogies have gaps in them, for one thing. The genealogies are often thematically arranged. They are certainly not intended to give a chronology, that is, a straight-line chronology. The word beget in the Old Testament is not used in the sense that we speak of begetting a son. When we speak of begetting, we mean the immediate, the direct descendant immediately. But they could use the word of beget and say so-and-so begat and give the name of a city. Or they could say, so-and-so begat, and then give the name of a man ten steps down the line who was the prominent man in that particular era of people. So the word begat did not mean immediate begetting, necessarily. And this could be true in some of the genealogies, that so-and-so begat so-and-so, who was not necessarily the immediate descendant, but was the prominent one, in the line of descendants. Genealogies are not to be used for formulating chronologies. There are other people, however, who take a relatively recent date for creation, who have not formed it on that basis, but have simply taken the facts as they see them today and have sought to weave the biblical information together with it. One such person is Dr. Donald E. Chittick, C-H-I-T-T-I-C-K, formerly professor of biophysics, I believe, at University of Puget Sound, and a fellow who is very familiar with all of the physical sciences, lectures often, a real devoted Christian, 
And he takes about the same date that perhaps Usher would take, but for a totally different reason, not on the basis Usher takes it, maybe 6,000 years ago as the date of creation. On the other hand, under the time of origin, there are people who go way the other way, and they push the date indefinitely backwards so that you span time anywhere from 6,000 years ago to 5 billion years ago. And when it gets to providing time, there really isn't ever enough time for the evolutionist. So he's always increasing the amount of time that he needs, and he probably will continue to do so. You shouldn't push the date indefinitely backward. Now, the theistic evolutionists, as well as the naturalistic evolutionists, of course, do that because they need time. Now, while it is felt that an exact time for man's origin cannot be determined, it would seem that it's more in keeping with the Bible to stay closer to a relatively recent date than it is for an ancient date. Be careful of weaving into your theory all kinds of pre-Adamic creation and animal life prior to Adam. Be careful of the consequences of securing your buttressing of paleontology, fossilology, from prior to Adam, because immediately you create for yourself a problem with regard to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5.12 makes it very clear that death entered into this world through the one sin of the one man, Adam, and us in that sin. Romans 5.12 says there was no death in the earth prior to that time. And if you've got pre-Adamic creations, then you've got death. So you've got to somehow work that out with Romans chapter 5. I would believe that the earth is a relatively recent creation. And I don't say that as a scientist who has studied all of the facts. I certainly am just a layman in that area, but I have listened to those who have sought to present the facts, and I've tried to link those with the Scripture, and it seems to me that it is altogether reasonable to conclude that the creation of the earth, the time of its origin, is relatively recent and that God created the earth with apparent age in it. I don't mean by that that God put age into the earth in order to deceive men. That's not it. And in previous expositions of this particular theory, there was even the suggestion that God planted fossils in rocks to give the appearance of age. Now, this is not what I'm saying. That unfortunately discredited the idea and blew it for a long time. But because people presented it that way and we lost the theory for a time does not mean that it is not a valuable theory. I believe that it has justification in biblical information. For example, when God created Adam, did he create him an embryo or did he create him an adult? If he created him as an adult, then he had appearance of age without having age. If Adam was 30 years of age when he was created, or if he had the appearance of 30 years of age, at that same time he had no history. So there was appearance of age. 
take another example of it. A miracle is the appearance of age without age. God turned water to wine. Anybody knows that takes a process of time, but God made it instantaneously. It had the appearance of age without age. Now, it would seem that if God wanted to have a functioning universe, functioning fully for an adult creation right from the beginning of creation, it needed to have appearance of age. God put Adam into a garden, told him to till it, to keep it. Scientists tell us that that ground must have thousands of years of maturing before it would ever produce fruit from the ground. Plants need light. I take it, what, the process which produces chlorophyll? And they tell us that the closest star to the Earth is 4.27 years away, the light. That's the closest star. Other stars, perhaps thousands, I don't know, millions of years away. So that light, which is needed for the process of a functioning universe, has time involved in coming to Earth, and yet when God created, the Earth was functioning, so it had to be there then. It would seem then that there was perhaps even uranium-lead decomposition built right in in order to have a functioning universe. So that when God created, he created with the appearance of age. And whatever that age was, we do not know. But from the time of creation with appearance of age, it seems that you don't need many thousands of years since that time to account for that which we have today. You want to check in Dr. Chittick's works that he has done through Moody Press. You might see some further confirmation of that, or John Whitcomb in a Genesis flood. The time of origin then seems to be relatively recent. The method of origin, capital B, the method of origin. I think we need to note right in the beginning under the method of origin that the source of man's origin is not an open question for the believer. That God is the creator, the only biblical, and therefore the only evangelical position is divine creation. As to method, however, within that creation, there are varying suggestions. Was it evolutionary or was it immediate? Did God create immediately or did he create through process? And immediately when you talk about that, as soon as you mention the word evolution, you have to have certain definitions. For some people would use the word evolution in the sense we talk about the evolution of the automobile, in the sense of development, or the evolution of the horse as development within that species of the horse. And so we need to distinguish between evolution as a synonym for development and evolution as a proper noun standing for that philosophical system which attempts to explain the presence of life on the earth through natural causes that relate to one common origin. They would take the origin back to God, but then the development through the causes in the natural universe. But when we talk about evolution, we're talking about development not within the bounds of the 
species after its kind, but outside of the bounds of that, even though they go back to a common ancestor. Evolution as development, then, and evolution as a philosophical system. Again, a distinction needs to be made between science and scientism. Science is accumulated knowledge that has been systematized systematized and formulated with reference to the discovery of general truths and of the operation of general laws. Again, accumulated knowledge, systematized and formulated with reference to the discovery of general truths and the operation of general laws. Science is not absolute. John Klotz has a good section on that in his book, pointing out that science is relative. No scientist claims to have absolute truth. He is seeking to look at all of the data and to arrange those and systematize them and come up with general laws and feels free to change certain things as more data is made available to him. So it's accumulated knowledge that is systematized. Whereas scientism, quite different. That's an attitude which makes natural law the final arbiter and interpreter of all things. Scientism is like a religion, is an attitude which makes natural law the final arbiter and interpreter of all things. So we need to get these ideas in our minds. Now, under the method of origin, then, we're going to talk, first of all, about evolutionary hypotheses, naturalistic and theistic, and then we will move on to the problems of evolution, then the biblical account of man's origin. Before we give, number one, the evolutionary hypothesis, let me suggest something that Chittick gave, which I found to be helpful to me. Oftentimes we hear people today referring to the facts and saying the facts demand that, and then they give their conclusions. I think it's important for us to hold people to a line of thinking here. The facts do not prove evolution, and the facts do not prove creation. Both evolutionists and creationists look at the facts. Sometimes the evolutionists would like to make people believe that creationists don't look at the facts, and that the facts only support evolution. But both of them look at the facts. There are good scientists on both sides. But on the one hand, there are scientists who come with presupposition number one, which is a presupposition of naturalism. And 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man, looking at the facts, is going to come up with conclusion number one, evolution. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, a natural man must come up with a natural conclusion, looking at the facts. On the other hand, presupposition number two over here is that of a supernaturalist, one who believes in God, accepts the fact of God, and looks at the facts through his presuppositions of God and the ability of revelation, taking the word of God, and comes to conclusion number two over here, which is special creation. Now, they're both looking at the facts. 
think it would help us in many of our conversations with people who disagree with us on the whole matter of the origin of things to say, let's get down to some basic truths. Uh, there are not a lot of facts that we really have when you get right down to it. There are pitifully few facts that we have. An awful lot is assumptions and conclusions drawn out of those assumptions. But the naturalist looks at the same facts the supernaturalist looks at. The naturalist comes with a certain bias, and the supernaturalist comes with a certain bias. And consequently, their conclusions are going to be in accord with the biases with which they came to the facts. And Dr. Chittick develops in a lectureship that we had that is now in print on faith, fact, and logic. Let's think logical. Faith, fact, and logic. With that in mind, number one under the method of origin then would be evolutionary hypotheses. And A under that, naturalistic evolution. This view holds that man ascended from the lower animals, body and soul, by a natural process controlled entirely by inherent forces. That's old hat to many of you. But just to state it. Man ascended from the lower animals, body and soul, by a natural process controlled entirely by inherent forces. When a naturalistic evolutionist comes to the matter of life, the only option he has is to say life began spontaneously somehow or another. He would want to deny that, even as we mentioned the quotation from John Whitcomb of the Harvard Prof, who said, we recognize today that the theory of spontaneous generation is no longer acceptable. Goes on to say, yet here we are, the product of spontaneous generation, and goes on to say that must be so because the only alternative is special creation, and that's impossible. Okay, that's exactly back here. Special creation demands a supernaturalistic presupposition. He cannot accept that. That's impossible. Therefore, he will accept that which doesn't accord with the facts, as far as he can see them today, that is spontaneous generation, to come to his conclusion the best he can do with a natural mind. You can't fault a man for doing the best he can do. He does not have a supernatural viewpoint. So life for him begins spontaneously, and the species came through natural law from that spontaneous beginning. The whole theory then has to be purely mechanistic and materialistic. So that when you come to differences between the ape and the man, those differences are not really in kind, but they are in speech and the use of symbols for writing and possibly the making of tools. These are a matter of degree of difference. With all of their explanations, it does not account for the beginning of matter or force. I'm not trying to relate matter and force at this time simply saying it does not account for the beginning of matter or force, and it has its greatest weakness, and it has no explanation, no satisfactory explanation for the origin of life. If you want to go a little bit further than that on a very uh, simple basis, but helpful basis, you might want to get World Book Encyclopedia. World Book Encyclopedia is by far and away the most popular encyclopedia, especially in the high school realm. And interestingly enough, when they deal with evolution in World Book, they come down to a title that says Objections to Evolution. And under the objections, they say there are three. 
a particular view concerning sin, a particular view concerning the Bible, and a particular view concerning God. They're very, very interesting to look at. Three specific things promoted by World Book which stand in the way of naturalistic evolution. And I think that'd be a good place to lead a person to see what this volume says. B, under evolutionary hypotheses, is theistic evolution. And probably this is the place where more of us would have more problems within the Christian fold. There are varying degrees of theistic evolution. You've perhaps heard of threshold evolution or progressive creationism or Adam and Eve as an island among other islands of creation and so on and so forth. These are all various ways of looking at creation from a theistic viewpoint. Sometimes it might be better to call it deistic because they talk about a supernatural force rather than the supernatural force which is behind these things. But there are varying degrees of theistic evolutionists. The theistic evolutionist says, per se, that supernatural agency was active in creation and in continuous intervention in the evolutionary process. And this supernaturally superintended process, that's a mouthful, brings life from the simple to the complex. So it's an attempt to join philosophical evolution and special creation. A demonstration of that, A.H. Strong's Systematic Theology, 391 to 397. Strong is a theistic evolutionist, and he seeks to bring God to bridge the gap between the organic and the inorganic, the rational and irrational creation. As to man, only his body is derived from the brute God would be said to have given him a soul. That, by the way, is what is presented by E.J. Carnell in his book, The Case for Orthodox Theology, as well as the liberal L. Harold DeWolf in his book, Theology of the Living Church. Theistic evolution, then, is trying to bring together philosophical evolution and special creation in some kind of a mutual compact. We cannot go into the untenability of that kind of a conjoining if you're particularly interested in that, again, I refer you to an article on that subject, Carl Henry, in a book called Contemporary Evangelical Thought, has one article entitled Science and Religion. Carl Henry, Contemporary Evangelical Thought, Science and Religion, deals with this problem of trying to join philosophical evolution with special creation and shows the untenability of it. Now, C, problems for evolution, and particularly for theistic evolution posed by the scriptures. Problems for evolution posed by the scriptures. And one in brackets under that. Introduction. And here I would like to mention just a series of passages of scripture which indicate that animals and man and various human organs are said to be created by God. Animals, man, various human organs. Notice, Nehemiah 9.6, Revelation 10.6, Isaiah 17.7, Jeremiah 27.5, Acts 17.24-25, Matthew 19.4, Mark 
10.6, Proverbs 20.12, Psalm 94.9. Save you going through the concordance. These are a number of verses that show God's direct involvement in the creating of animals, man, and various human organs. Two in brackets under problems. Two. Problems related to the direct creation of man's body, as far as the scripture is concerned. A in brackets under that. There are five of these. I'll just mention quickly. A, scripture, Genesis 2-7 says that the body was made of the dust of the ground. Now, theistic evolutionists like A.H. Strong says that the dust was animated dust. That is, the dust is to be understood allegorically as of the former animal creation. So he uses that pictorially to say that God created man's body from the prior creation of the animal. It's difficult to accept that in the light of Genesis 3.19, that out of dust you were made into dust, you shall return. As the fellow who looked under his bed and said, uh, Mother, I see a man who's either coming or going. If we return to dust, then it seems a bit difficult to see that dust as animated dust, saying that we have come the process from the ape to man, and now we go back from the man to the ape. Ecclesiastes 3.19, as well as Genesis 3.19, would have a problem with that since men do not return to the animal state at death. B in brackets, under problems related to the direct creation of man's body, if man's body was originally that of an animal, it must have been rendered, quote, not subject to death, end quote, in order to fall later. That is, assuming the theistic evolutionist idea that animals did die prior to the fall. Thirdly, C, different kinds of flesh are distinguished in 1 Corinthians 15.39. Not just one kind of flesh at creation, but different kinds of flesh distinguished. Fourth, God created mankind from the beginning, male and female. Matthew 19.4, Mark 10.6. God created mankind from the beginning, male and female. So you have right from the beginning the scriptural statement of two beings, a pair. A fifth, Eve's body was a special creation of God. Genesis 2.21 and 22. Now, to acknowledge this and to deny the same for Adam is inconsistent, ridiculous. To acknowledge that Eve was a special creation and to deny that Adam was seems to lack something by way of consistency. The uniqueness of this origin is also underscored in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 12, and 1 Timothy 2.13. 
So much for the problems related to the direct creation of man's body. Three in brackets under problems for theistic evolution. The problem related to man's creation in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The problem related to man's creation in the image of God. This verse speaks of God creating man in his image, not some part of man, such as the soul, but man. It treats man as a unity. God didn't create the body in the image of God or the soul in the image of God. God created man in the image of God. Fourth, the problem related to God's endowment of man with the principle of life. Genesis 2.7. This scripture declares that at that point, notice it, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became, at that point, a living soul. At that point. That is, he became animate. At that point, a living soul. Now, interestingly, the same terms are used of the animal creation in Genesis 1, 21 and 24. And God created great sea monsters and every living creature. The same terms are used of the brute creation in Genesis 1, 21 and 24, a living creature. So at one point, a living creature, at another point, a living soul at that point. So there's a marked discontinuity between brute and man. Fifth, the problem related to man's fall into sin. The scriptures simply do not present man as beginning an ascent from the level of brute, but rather Genesis 3 indicates the beginning of a degeneration. So the whole scope of the scripture presents exactly the opposite. Rather than ascent, you have degeneration. For a fuller discussion of all of those, see Zimmerman in his book Darwin, Evolution and Creation, or some of the others that we recommended. Number two, and we want to give you just four points here real quickly. Number one was the evolutionary hypotheses, and we dealt with naturalistic evolution and theistic evolution. Now, number two, following the evolutionary hypotheses, is the biblical account of man's origin. It's not a lengthy thing. It's rather simple. A, B, C, D. A, it is distinct from other creative acts. How? Genesis 1.26 says, Man's creation was preceded by divine counsel. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, so on and so forth. Man's creation was preceded by divine counsel. That's the first thing in the record. Secondly, in verse 27, it is represented as an immediate act. The statement is, and God created man. Now that needs to be contrasted with Genesis 1, 11 and 20 and 24 which point to the beginning of a process within specified boundaries. Listen to it. And God said, Let the earth bring forth vegetation, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, 
whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Genesis 1, 11, 20, and 24 point to the beginning of a process within specified boundaries after its kind, while with man we begin with the finished product. Third, from the following narrative to that, you note that man originally was neither inarticulate, 2, 19, and 20, or primitive, 2.15, or amoral, 2.16 and 17, or unintelligent, 2.19 and 20, nor without capacity for true religious experience, 3.8 to 10. Thirdly, man is distinguished from the lower creatures by being created after a divine type. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in the image of God. I'd like to have somebody sing that song right now. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Finally, 4. Man is given dominion over the rest of the natural creation. Genesis 1, 26, 28. So there is a marked gap between man and beast. Man has dominion over all the beasts of the field. Those four things then, man's creation was preceded by divine counsel. Man's creation was an immediate act in which he was a finished product, not merely the beginning of a process. Man is distinguished from the lower creatures by being in the image of God. And man is given dominion over the rest of the creatures, making a significant gap between man and the brute creation. Okay, let's take a break and then come back to the unity of the race.